we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. Really excited to get into this privacy legislation year in review episode, joined by Kier Lamont and Divya Shridhar. And this is sort of a follow-up episode to an episode that we did a year ago uh, with Kier on what sort of happened in privacy in 2022 and what was potentially coming down the pipeline in 2023. And so I want to touch back on that conversation a little bit, but also so much in privacy happened in 2023 that we're going to have a lot to talk about today. So in our discussion last year, Kier, our conversation was sort of framed around this blog post that you had written for the Future of Privacy Forum, where you work. Uh, and that blog post was five main questions with a caveat for zero predictions for 2023. And in that episode from last year, which we'll link in the show notes if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, I want to go back to those key questions you've had and sort of walk us through them throughout this conversation to see how things actually shaped up for U.S. privacy in 2023. Uh, But before we do that, I want to quickly have you two just introduce yourselves, say a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thank you so much, Rima, for having me back uh, for another year of this. Uh, I think it's a good thing in that article last year, I was very clear that I was making zero predictions, so uh, I wasn't able to get everything wrong, uh, which I'm sure would have been the case. Uh, I will be releasing another article, again with uh, zero predictions, for 2024, so that may be out by the time uh, you're listening to that. Uh, but about myself, uh, my name is Kier Lamont, and I am the Director for U.S. Legislation at the Future of Privacy Forum, a D.C.-based think tank. In this role, I spend much of my time engaging with various stakeholder communities, uh, privacy professionals, policymakers, and civil society on state and federal privacy laws and proposals, largely with a focus on comparative analysis between different frameworks and regimes. I'm Dr. Divya Sridhar. I'm the Director of Privacy Initiatives at BBB National Programs. Uh, My portfolio encompasses the design, development, and launch of multiple industry self-regulation privacy programs. And I'm a seasoned leader who's previously served in numerous capacities at think tanks, private companies, and nonprofits, uh, leading government affairs and public policy work. Uh, For those that are not aware, BBB National Programs is a nonpartisan nonprofit, and we have a host of industry self-regulation, accountability programs, and privacy compliance programs. And I want to start with one of the questions that you asked in your blog last year here, which was whether any state will not only pass 
a new comprehensive state privacy law, but whether any new legislation would go farther for privacy or address privacy in novel ways uh, from the existing comprehensive state laws, which at the time were California, Connecticut, Virginia, Utah, and Colorado. So a lot has happened since then. Could you give us an overview of which states have passed new legislation since that conversation? Absolutely. So for a little bit of kind of background context here, uh, as of this year, the United States is now the only G20 nation without a comprehensive national framework governing the collection, processing, and sharing of the personal information of consumers. And so in the face of persistent federal gridlock and inaction, uh, which we may get to, uh, individual U.S. states have been increasingly picking up the mantle and passing laws to protect the privacy of their residents. Uh, as you mentioned, entering the beginning of this year, we had five states that had passed what we often call comprehensive consumer privacy laws, California, Virginia, Colorado, Connecticut, and Utah. Though, note, uh, while we usually call these laws uh, comprehensive, they are subject to a whole host of carve-outs and exceptions, uh, such as not interfering with existing uh, sectoral uh, federal uh, privacy laws. So the first of these laws, uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, dates back to 2018. So it's really been at a rate of one or two a year that these new laws had been getting passed uh, coming into 2023. However, now at the end of 2023, sitting here when the dust is finally starting to settle, we are now up to 12 or maybe 13 of these new privacy laws. So this is the year that the floodgates really opened and comprehensive consumer privacy laws were enacted in Iowa, Indiana, Tennessee, Montana, Texas, Oregon, Delaware, and maybe Florida, which passed a very broad kind of far-reaching law, but it only applies to a few very large companies and very specific lines of business. So a lot of people, myself included, don't really include this Florida law in the same category of comprehensive privacy legislation. So, uh, again, discounting Florida, uh, for the most part, these laws have generally iterated around the edges of what has come be uh, before them. So I would say for the most part, there hasn't been a new paradigm-shifting uh, consumer privacy, comprehensive consumer privacy framework passed in the States these years, this, this year. Uh, for the most part, these laws very clearly take either Virginia or Connecticut as their basis to legislate from. And even Virginia and Connecticut, Connecticut is probably a bit further reaching than Virginia, but they share the ge same general framework. And note also that these laws are getting passed with uh, bipartisan support in both deep red and deep blue states. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't impactful and meaningful differences uh, in consumer rights and business obligations that uh, the laws passed this year uh, have introduced. Uh, so if I'm a company and I want to build out a compliance program that covers all 50 states, uh, what should I know from the past year? Uh, first, uh, in Texas, uh, 
the Texas privacy law is the first to apply in some capacity to all businesses. Most of these laws carve out very small businesses that only collect the personal information from a small number of in-state residents. However, Texas says, even if you're one of these very small businesses, if you're selling the sensitive personal information of individuals, you need to get their consent to do that. That's the first. Uh, Next, there's Oregon, which created a new transparency right. Under Oregon's new privacy law, companies have to disclose the specific third-party entities to whom they disclose the personal information of uh, individuals. Most of the other states, you only disclose the categories of third-party entities which receive that personal information. So that's a big deal as well. And also in Delaware, which also passed a law this year, they created heightened protections for adolescent data up to age 17. Most other states that create this heightened protection for youth personal information set the upper age range there at 15. So that's an interesting and significant difference as well. Uh, Looking a bit further at some of the states that had already had laws enacted coming into this year, uh, Connecticut may actually be the best answer to your question, because even before its landmark privacy statute uh, went into effect, this year the lawmakers came back and they passed amendments to expand protections for consumer health data and children's data. And then finally, also this year, regulatory processes uh, were completed in California and Colorado, which did meaningfully alter the substance of these laws to a notable degree. Uh, And in particular, I will point out regulation section 7002 in California, which seems to create a new data minimization standard based upon the reasonable expectations of consumers. And that could be a really impactful piece of California privacy law going forward. So again, all of these states, with the exception of Florida, are very much reading from the same hymn book. Uh, Overall, we have uh, a level of standardization and convergence in terms of these broad-based comprehensive privacy laws. However, in 2023, we have seen much more divergence in what we call these sectoral privacy laws, which seek to regulate a particular class of data or particular technology, such as artificial intelligence, health data, children's data, the information processed and shared by data brokers. There's been much more divergence in those categories of laws this year, and I hope we can dig into that a little bit further as this conversation goes forward. Yeah, and Kira, I can add a bit to that. I think you summed it up really well. Um, I would give 2023 an A for anomaly for its track record compared to the past, uh, where the focus was strictly on comprehensive data privacy legislation, as you noted. Um, and where I think things got a little nutty was the red state, blue state politics. So I'll make a note of that as well. It's a pre-election year. What we saw were that, were, was that there was a lot of changes on the data privacy front because states were taking the charge and being more aggressive around key issues, battle, battleground issues that they think, you know, much of the gubernatorial candidates as well as the likely presidential candidates can really run on. So, uh, many of the priorities have included things that you've mentioned, like health data, like teen privacy and social media issues, which are key issues that, you know, a candidate can really take with it and run with it as to talking points and and issues that are really supercharged, right? And that can really get uh, an electorate to back it. Um, And so I think parental rights is another really interesting issue under the subcategory of teen and 
online privacy, uh, online safety issues for, for kids. Um, so uh, 100% agree with your analysis. And I, th I think that some of the sectoral gap filling that's happening, uh, given that there are already federal sectoral laws in, uh, in place around privacy, has led to states having to really take the charge and run with it this year. And we may see a movement away from that next year, given that it is an election year and make it a little, it may be a little too supercharged to, to bring those issues to the forefront. Or we may see, or we may see a double downing uh, on these very issues as well. So wanted to bring up a few of those. Here in your post last year, you also asked whether the existing laws coming into effect in 2023 would actually be effective or at least at a baseline enforced. So have they been and how or how not? Yeah, that is an important question. And at this stage, I would have to say incomplete or still too early to tell. I wrote that article last year on the heels of the first big enforcement action, public enforcement action involving one of these new state laws. And that was the California Attorney General uh, taking an action against the French cosmetics reeler Sephora, uh, largely involving allegations for failing to provide uh, individual rights to opt out of the use of their personal information for targeted advertising, uh, which happened back in 2022 and resulted in, I believe, a $1.2 million settlement, which is significant and got the attention of uh, many folks in business, certainly. Uh, however, uh, looking across the landscape in 2023, if we're talking about these comprehensive consumer privacy laws, zero big enforcement actions this year. And I think there are probably two primary reasons for this. Uh, first, uh, the state of California's uh, authority was actually thrown into doubt somewhat to enforce their privacy law. The underlying privacy law was amended and expanded through a major ballot initiative, which uh, established authority for a new round of uh, regulations. Uh, there were timelines associated uh, with promulgating those regulations that were missed. Uh, and as a result, there was a legal challenge from the California Chamber of Commerce, which at this juncture has resulted in a court holding that the California regulations cannot be enforced until a year after they were actually finalized. So there's a bit of a question in California now, uh, when could enforcement action be taken uh, that would be rooted in the underlying law versus be rooted in the regulations, which have been finalized in some capacity, but aren't in effect yet, uh, or can't be enforced yet under this one court holding. So uh, enforcement like authority... It sounds like you're a little salty about the CPPA board meetings being held on Friday evenings. Is, is that it? <laughs> Did I get that right? Well, you know, it's it's Friday mornings in, in California, <laughs> and they can't uh, cater to a uh, an East Coast East Coast guy like me. I uh, can't can't hold that against them. Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. So that's uh, one of the uh, the issues with California. 
But then outside California, we have uh, three other states with laws in effect right now. Uh, but all of these laws uh, provide businesses with a right to fix alleged violations within either 30 or 45 days before a big public enforcement action or settlement kind of can be reached. So it may be the case that attorneys general in these states may be identifying problems, uh, sending letters, and companies rapidly bringing their operations into compliance without a lot of big public settlements or fines. So those may be reasons we haven't seen kind of a lot of public visibility around enforcement this year. However, we have still seen many indicators of regulatory interest, which suggest maybe 2024 will be the year we see a rapid uptake in uh, enforcement actions around this new era of state privacy laws. Uh, the Connecticut Attorney General has been sending letters asking about how companies are complying with their uh, state law. Uh, the Colorado Attorney General has sent letters informing companies of their obligations under the Colorado Privacy Act, uh, with a particular focus on requirements with respect to handling sensitive data. And regulators in California have sent inquiry letters seeking information about how the CCPA is being implemented with respect to both employee data and in the connected vehicle context. Uh, so that's both really interesting. Uh, and then finally, I think it is important to emphasize that these are really a new and very complex uh, class of uh, consumer protection laws. And I think that both kind of covered entities and enforcers are on a journey to what ultimate compliance is going to look like. Uh, going into 2024, it is important to watch this space closely because the ultimate impact of these privacy laws isn't just going to be determined by uh, what the words in the actual bills or the laws are, but also by how they are interpreted, implemented, and ultimately enforced. And to add to that here, I'll say um, I co-lead our digital advertising accountability program, and it is a voluntary self-regulation program that aligns companies to their obligations to provide consumers meaningful and informed consent, choice, and transparency in the digital advertising marketplace. And I think what is really interesting from a compliance standpoint is that there are so many gaps we've seen this year in companies uh, taking a backseat with regard to their self-regulatory obligations, with regard to the DAA principles, and we've uh, you know, you'll see our public advertising uh, case decisions on our website. Um, we've come after uh, this year alone um, some of the biggest big names, for example, Ticketmaster, uh, Timu, um, which is a huge retail giant today. I think it's billions of dollars. Um, we've come after Stars and a number of other uh, companies that are uh, clearly in violation of the uh, appropriate uh, and in informed meaningful consumer choice and transparency principles in the digital advertising ecosystem. And so you'll see an overlap between the comprehensive consumer privacy laws and the expectations around targeted advertising, the consumer rights requests that are that are uh, appropriately defined, and what is already out there in the digital advertising marketplace with regard to the, to the obligations companies need to be meeting. And so we have seen clearly that those are not in alignment and the company should be making good uh, good faith, good, good faith efforts with regard to their voluntary commitments uh, to ensure that regulators uh, have that feeling of um, th th that there is responsibility in the marketplace with regard to privacy as well as advertising and how all of these different, um, you know, different areas actually align in practice. Um, and so could share more on that, but wanted to touch on that important element as well.
Another question from your list here was whether health and location data would be a priority on the state legislation level. And in Washington state, the My Health, My Data Act was a big part of the conversation this year. So Divya, in a nutshell, because we saw that Mike Hinsey wrote, I think like six or seven parts, so we could talk about this forever. But in a nutshell, what does that law seek to do and what do folks need to know about it? Absolutely. And I'll say for folks that don't have enough coverage on this, which I'm sure everybody's you know all over it right now. Um, I also have done a piece in IAPP that was published earlier in the year on taking a risk-based approach to consumer health privacy. And so that might be an interesting read for folks that really want a better sense of not only what does, what does the law do, but how can companies adapt and retrofit their current approach to privacy to better reflect the needs in um, this particular law. But at a 10,000 foot level, so the Washington My Health, My Data Act is a state consumer health privacy law. It seeks to really empower healthcare consumers by providing new rights, disclosures, and opportunities to engage with uh, opportunities for consumers to engage with their own non-HIPAA covered health data. So all the non-patient related data that consumers use uh, and that gets processed for mobile health apps, sleep and leisure tracking apps, and other devices, including you know XR, VR tools, and so on, and related experiences. Um, The idea was that for all of the data sets that are not covered directly under HIPAA, consumers should be able to take back control. And they should have, the businesses should have obligations to provide consumers with you know, clear expectations, clear notice, clear disclosures and consent. And um, also that the businesses should be held to the data minimization and governance requirements that they're already held to for broader consumer you know, uh, privacy uh, expectations in those states that, that have those consumer privacy laws. Um, so the idea was to really evaluate, help consumers, uh, help companies evaluate the risk-reward ratio and reset expectations around consumer health data and limit monetization of that data, which can be considered sensitive. Um, A little bit of background, because that might be helpful for those who are fairly new to the space. The law was organically born out of the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year and truly left states to act. And so Washington picked that up, picked up that baton baton and said, we need to act on preserving consumer rights in these sensitive health contexts, particularly with regard to reproductive health data. So the law was rooted and drawn very broadly based on that particular context, and it left gaps in terms of the definitions of consumer health information, in terms of the definition of sensitive health data, and more importantly, in terms of interpretation of how the data could be applied, how the law could be applied in real world settings. So given the private right of action that will take effect, and the vast majority of the law will also take effect next year, I think we're going to see a lot of important ripple effects from the law and how it's going to tremendously impact the landscape because many other laws are modeling off of it. Um, and so more to be seen there, but from a company's um, compliance standpoint, there's probably a few, at least a few things that companies can do to really get ready. The first of which is, you know, determine uh, what your data flows look like with, re- with regard to consumer health data defined broadly as it is in the Washington law and uh, ensure that you're crafting a separate health privacy policy because that is an expectation in the law specific to the data processing that you are doing. In addition to that, think about the law from the perspective of the type of data that is being inferred and not just the raw data itself. So if you're deriving inferences from the consumer health data or use uh, a vast majority of social determinants of health, that kind of data, which is used then for other um, routine practices like advertising, needs to be under uh, further 
um, you know, clear a further kind of review. And so for some of those practices that may seem routine, especially advertising, I think that's going to be a very important focus and a crux for next year um, with regard to this law in particular. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that the this is a law on a very important topic and was very much a reaction born out of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision and a recognition of the need to uh, take additional steps to protect uh, sensitive health information, uh, particularly uh, information relating to reproductive care. It is important to note, and uh, you, you noted this, that as drafted, the law does apply to a much broader range of health information. And during the legislative hearings uh, that led to the creation of this law, you saw multiple business lobbyists uh, express concern that the law may be overbroad and could also uh, cover and apply to information such as a record of purchasing ginger, which could have uh, medical benefits or something like following a fitness influencer on Instagram. So I think open questions about how this law will be interpreted by both the attorney general, who is the regulator, as well as the courts in Washington state, because as you mentioned, there is a private right of action. And one of the big questions in the, the privacy landscape for a long time has been whether any state will pass a new privacy law with a broad private right of action. Well, there's a narrow, very narrow one in California, but really, this is the first one since the enactment of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, DIPA, way, way back in 2008. Uh, so there's been significant concern about what this private right of action will mean in practice. Uh, there are important differences and distinctions from the BIPA statute. Uh, BIPA contains statutory damages and uh, provides the ability to recover uh, damages of $5,000 uh, per violation. Uh, Washington State is a little different, and the My Health, My Data Act's private right of action is tied into Washington State's Consumer Protection Act, which to recover damages requires a showing of injury to, I think, business or property. Uh, and you're going to need a smarter lawyer than me to tell you what that is actually going to mean in practice. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, March 2024, uh, major portions of this law will take effect. And the evolving litigation landscape around this law is going to be very important, including what the public perception around this law is about how it actually protects individual privacy interests and how it impacts businesses. And that, I think, is going to have a big impact on how states across the nation consider what enforcement mechanisms to include in both the health privacy laws, as well as the general privacy laws uh, that will be considered going forward. I think an important distinction about the consumer health privacy law in Washington, and we've actually had conversations with the FTC and HHS about this, is that Washington, uh, the My Health, My Data Act doesn't have a broad exemption that applies to those uh, covered entities that are meeting their obligations under HIPAA. Um, instead, the 
Washington My Health My Data Act focuses on data level coverage and uh, exemptions specific to that. And so uh, I would just bring attention to that as well, because I think a lot of companies, a lot of healthcare, whether it's telehealth companies or hospitals that have traditionally been covered under HIPAA and felt that many of these consumer consumer privacy laws or consumer health privacy laws don't apply to them in many circumstances in the past. That may be true because the consumer private, the comprehensive consumer privacy laws do have, for the most part uh, that I'm aware of, have these exemptions to laws like HIPAA, the, the federal laws. Uh, but Washington My Health My Data Act takes a very different approach. So please pay attention, close attention to that, because I think that's going to have some important ripple effects and implications here to your point with regard to how the read of the state AGs and the regulators in Washington next year, you know, as, as this law comes into effect. So it might be very interesting to see which organizations are, are found to be running afoul of the law. In addition to Washington State, has there been any other state or federal level legislation on health and location data in the past year that we should keep our eye on? First off, right after Washington passed uh, its the My Health My Data Act, there was Connecticut and Nevada, which followed very quickly, and they took broad brushstrokes from Washington, but they did narrow the law in, I think, the most appropriate places for industry. So uh, kind of hats off to industry for helping kind of corral that, rein it in so that we don't have three My Health, My Data Acts in place. But Connecticut and Nevada, I think, to some extent, uh, more narrowly define terms and also do a better job when it comes to the more practical business applications. Um, and so I think in those states, we might see a different aftermath than we will in Washington. Um, in addition to those three that I think are pertinent, there are some important trends with regard to geofencing that I think is relevant in the health space as well as outside of it. Uh, there is one particular law that was passed kind of just surreptitiously through the budget process in New York state, and uh, that geofencing law, um, you know, it cropped up and has now, it, it, once it takes effect, I, I believe it's going to be taking effect next year, but correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't been following it that closely. Um, it is a, it's going to have important effects, particularly for location-based advertising. So for those on the call that are not aware, geofencing is a technical solution that allows for tailored and targeted location-based advertising to a specific uh, entity or context. And in, in many circumstances, it's been used in the healthcare context to allow for um, prospective and current patients to be better connected with the appropriate health solutions and um, health locations as well and, and health providers. So uh, what we're seeing is a reining back of, I think, the um, more general parameters around geofencing and allowances for that particular technical uh, and operational solution. And so um, that was one trend that I noticed that we may see more of. It's it's a little bit more in the weeds. And so, com you know, companies, folks may not be as aware of it and they might be you know, undertaking those efforts and, and not even be aware. Um, in addition to that, I'll say that, um, you know, we may see more states take a bite of the same apple, as I mentioned, uh, similar to Washington, Connecticut, and Nevada, and kind of try to pass their own consumer health privacy laws next year. And much of that will have ripple effects for AI. And so I think having a close pulse on what's coming out of California's AI regulations, how that's going to have an impact on uh, consumer privacy and in these more sector-specific spaces, uh, the impacts for health and systems that primarily are automated will be really, really interesting. So making sure co uh, folks are thinking holistically and not, you know, just, you know, uh, consumer health privacy is, is in one, you know, sitting in one bucket and then AI is in a separate bucket, making sure you're having that cross-pollination on these issues because all of this, all the data is 
under really one big, you know, it's all one big set and data set. And so we should be thinking about these issues holistically. Uh, I'll briefly note that federally, there has been some activity as well. Uh, Health data bills have been uh, introduced by Senator Klobuchar. Uh, The privacy of health data is a uh, focal point for uh, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana. And this year, Representative uh, Sarah Jacobs from California reintroduced the My Body, My Data Act, which many attributes of have served as something of a basis for what was ultimately enacted in Washington state with the My Health, My Data Act. So even though we're not anticipating uh, many new privacy laws to get over the finish line in Congress, certainly next year, uh, introducing uh, legislation at the federal level can sometimes have a trickle-down effect and impact on what the states ultimately end up doing. Um, You asked also about uh, location uh, data, and that was one of my questions in last year's blog. And really, there haven't been many bills that focus just on establishing new privacy rights and protections surrounding uh, sensitive location information. There's one bill in Massachusetts, uh, which is a bit unique and might actually say that IP addresses are location data and that might have significant impacts on regular browsing uh, activities if that bill uh, goes forward in its current form. Uh, however, for the most part, the approach that uh, lawmakers have taken uh, is thinking about how can sensitive location data uh, reveal other categories of sensitive information and re- established protections that way. Uh, If there's location collected about you that you spend uh, three hours a month at a highly specialized healthcare clinic, you can probably draw some pretty uh, significant and revealing inferences about the health status of that individual. And that has been the focus of uh, many of these laws. Uh, I think Divya is actually right. Uh, Nevada especially passed something of an alternative model to the Washington My Health, My Data Act. So I'm very interested to see if other states that are turning their attention to uh, protecting consumer health data rely either on the Washington model or the Nevada model as a basis for going forward or select something else. And then we'll also just note really briefly here that California passed, I believe, SB 362 called the Delete Act, which will require the creation of an an entirely new consumer tool, which would be a one-stop shop deletion mechanism to allow individuals to submit one request to require every data broker operating in the state to delete the information that broker has on that individual. There were some big questions about how that is going to operate and protect consumers in practice, but it's a very uh, interesting additional piece of this landscape. And obviously, many of these companies will have both location and health information uh, collected uh, on individuals. During last year's privacy recap episode, we also talked about the enforcement level of health and location data protection. And on this show, throughout the past year, we've discussed the Kochava case, which has had some very interesting updates this year. We've discussed GoodRx, Premom, and many other cases brought by the Federal Trade Commission on this very subject. So looking ahead to 2024, 
How do you think federal agency action, whether via rulemaking or enforcement, could interact with state action on enforcement and even legislation on health and location data or the sort of bucket category of sensitive data more generally as well? So last year, the FTC had several NPRMs underway, one of which was the commercial surveillance rulemaking. And I think I have not, to my knowledge, I haven't seen anything additional come out of the FTC this year on that particular topic. And I think it has really important repercussions for the health and geolocation space in particular, because it was so broad and having been an important part, a contributor and an author of the comments that I submitted my role at a trade association last year on that particular effort, I think it should be really interesting to see whether or not the FTC will more narrowly tailor their next steps around that particular AMPRM and if that turns into some sort of rulemaking in a particular sector or more sensitive data set, you know, kind of focused on something that is um, more narrow. Uh, Second, I'll say, and I'm providing a few trends on the FTC side just because of BBB national programs and how we very closely work with not only the the FTC, but also have a number of ex-FTC veterans on our staff. So we do have a lot of insights as to some of the trends and what's happening in the space. Um, second, I'll say, yes, Rima, you, you know, summed it up perfectly on the slew of enforcement action this year, particularly in the health space. I have to say it's notable that not only were they going after companies that collect and process health data, the data brokers that, you know, Cure mentioned, but also reproductive app data and fertility data, as well as genetic data was one of their more recent cases this year. So it's really a broad range. They're not just going after the same company over and over. And also of interest is the fact that they reaffirmed their commitment to upholding Section 5 with with regard to biometric data and AI in a policy statement, which I think that's fabulous to see all of the, not only the FTC, but also cross agency work that's happening. And the AI, you know, that particular um, commitment was launched by not only the FTC, but also the EEOC and the DOJ and a number of other agencies. So there's a lot of agency activity and interest in some of the more emerging technology fields. Um, next thing I'll say, in particular to the healthcare context, the FTC and HHS sent out joint warning letters to over 100 healthcare providers, telehealth companies, and hospitals this year, uh, mid-year, and that was really a way to scold companies, you know, about their pixel tracking, ad tech that's happening, and just. Um, you know, making it making companies, a lot of the healthcare and hospital companies that I, I mentioned before that may not consider themselves, you know, where consumer protections they think don't don't really apply or, you know, HIPAA is the law, really the land of the law for them. It was almost a uh, an important, you know, call to action to make sure that they are seeing the fine lines and the connections between ad tech, privacy and consumer and patient health data and all of the important intersections there. So we're seeing the lines become more and more blurry across the agencies and sort of the types of work they want to do. One last trend I'll say, I'll say that has been relevant this year, uh, and then, you know, we can tie it into state action is the fact that the FTC launched an uh, interesting uh, rulemaking around, or I think it was a proposed rulemaking around the health breach notification. And that includes sort of the expanded definition of what a breach is. And again, advertising and privacy are so interrelated in this particular context because the way that the FTC in its recent enforcement action has been defining a breach, a consumer breach is much broader, broader than what we've seen in the past. And that means that just by sharing a consumer's health data without their consent, 
um, in, in the advertising context, for example, or with a third party uh, could be considered a breach. And that is very much, I think, a, a step further than what we've seen the FTC do in many past uh, years. Second, I think on the congressional side, um, Senator Cassidy had opened up a request for information on health data and again asked questions about, you know, what, what is it, what does HIPAA do currently? Should there be a broader applicability? Are there ways to uh, close gaps by, you know, potentially reopening that can of worms that is HIPAA and or doing something in addition that could potentially, um, you know, empower consumers and uh, strengthen the current accountability in place. So with all that being said, um, I will actually, I'll say that, you know, something briefly, and then maybe we can have Akir share more about kind of the intersection between the federal and the state interplay of the enforcement. But I, I'll say that um, we do need companies to watch out for these broader trends that are happening at the regulatory level, uh, uh, you know, a federal regulation. And uh, that's going to have important consequences because the state AGs are listening and they're watching. And many of them are applying what they're seeing in the federal context to the cases that they are bringing at the state level. I'll note that we have been kind of talking about many kind of specific laws that are new or maybe being updated or reapplied in some ways to uh, create protections around sensitive personal information and particularly inferences that can um, uh, reveal uh, sensitive uh, information. Uh, however, the Federal Trade Commission, as you mentioned, under its Section 5 authority, has the ability to police against unfair and deceptive acts and practices in the market. Uh, state attorney generals as well, for the most part, have their mini state UDAPs of the same ability to regulate against unfair and deceptive acts and practices. And we are seeing many enforcement cases uh, take alleg make allegations about privacy, about use of data, alleging that certain business practices are deceptive or unfair. And the way that this kind of trend in enforcement is being applied and will ultimately be uh, adjudicated in the court system in many cases could also have a significant impact on, practically speaking, what businesses' privacy obligations are in this country. Not just the privacy laws on the book, but how regulators uh, interpret and enforce their ability to take action against these unfair and deceptive acts and practices. Another question from Kier's List last year touched on the topic of kids' online safety and the implications of kids' online safety-related laws for privacy. Uh, so age-appropriate design codes is one example. On the federal level, we have the Kids' Online Safety Act, or COSA. So maybe we'll start with Kier. Could you give an update on how the age-appropriate design code saga has unfolded in the California context and how the direction that these debates on the tensions between online safety uh, for kids in particular, but also generally, and privacy interests have been going throughout 2023. The California Age-Appropriate Design Code Act was passed uh, back in 2022. It's very much a children's online privacy bill, but it also has uh, content moderation provisions. It's an online safety bill. It has provisions that implicate free, free speech and access to information. Uh, it requires 
things like uh, online services to estimate the age of their users with a level of certainty that is proportionate to the risks of using the service. Uh, it requires uh, that these businesses post and adhere to content moderation policies. It requires that businesses conduct risk assessment that cover the likelihood of accessing potentially harmful content uh, and more. And so due to many of those provisions that are not commonly found in U.S. commercial consumer privacy laws, the Age-Appropriate Design Code Act was always going to be something of an odd fit for a United States context. And this isn't surprising because the authors and backers of the AADC were very open that this was incorporating and the proposal was rooted in a United Kingdom a code of practice that was intended to implement the European or now the UK general data protection regulation with respect to children's data. And so some of these requirements that I mentioned were always going to be in tension with longstanding First Amendment free speech uh, jurisprudence in the United States. So it came as no surprise when late in 2022, the business group uh, NetChoice uh, filed suit uh, seeking to strike down the AADC on a whole host of grounds. Uh, First Amendment, Dormant Commerce Clause, Section 230, vagueness, uh, etc. And that had, I think, a big impact on the broader state policymaking landscape in 2023. I think in last year's uh, blog, I noted that uh, California is often very influential on the rest of the country uh, when it comes to privacy. California will be the first mover, then other states will pass laws that match it in some capacity. And so I think I posed the question, would 2023 be the age of the age-appropriate design code? A very witty question. Uh, that did not come to pass, I think. We did see uh, copycat age-appropriate design code bills introduced in uh, maybe around 10 states. They actually came very close to passing in both Maryland and Minnesota. However, none of them got over the finish line. And I think a big reason for that was this open kind of ongoing litigation and open constitutional questions about how that framework uh, would withstand legal scrutiny. I will note that in that very unusual Florida privacy law that I mentioned, as well as those uh, amendments to the Connecticut privacy law, we did see specific protections for children's privacy that do seem rooted in some ways in that California Age Appropriate Design Code Act, but with some of the more uh, controversial and speech-involved provisions like these age assurance requirements uh, taken out. And then for further context, at the same time, we saw many uh, Republican-led states start to pass a new breed of laws that would require certain online platforms, such as social media companies, such as adult content sites, uh, to conduct age verification, which is probably a stricter standard than age estimation, which I had mentioned, and empower parents uh, with respect to their children's use of the platform. I think Divya mentioned this a bit earlier, but the furthest reaching of these laws is probably one that passed in Utah, 
which gives parents the choice of whether or not their uh, children or dependents up to age uh, 17 may actually open social media accounts. And it requires the platform to share the messages that children send or receive on those accounts, uh, share them with their parents. Uh, and that can potentially uh, protect children. Uh, but it also clearly raises a host of additional privacy, safety, free speech, and autonomy issues, uh, especially uh, if there are teens who may not be growing up in a supportive household uh, seeking to explore kind of their personal identity. So anyway, back to the age-appropriate design code saga. Uh, in September of this year, an Obama-appointed judge in California uh, issued an injunction that is preventing the law from going into effect. I believe this was expected. Uh, I mentioned uh, many areas in which the AADC appears in tension in some ways with longstanding U.S. jurisprudence. However, what was a surprise to many observers, uh, myself included, is that the judge went essentially step-by-step step through the law and found that almost every affirmative obligation in the AADC was unlikely to survive uh, First Amendment scrutiny uh, on the merits. Not just those content and speech requirements that I mentioned, but also provisions that relate very directly to individual privacy and that at a very and that at at least a conceptual level are included in many of the U.S. privacy statutes uh, we're talking about, we've been talking about in this conversation. So provisions on data minimization, uh, restrictions on uh, deceptive design practices, often called dark patterns, uh, even conducting risk assessments uh, at a high level, all of those have been thrown into some level of, of doubt by this uh, uh, injunction. So the, that age-appropriate design code decision uh, has been appealed uh, by the state of California. Uh, and I think how that case proceeds through the uh, court system has the potential to have a significant consequence and shape uh, privacy legislation in the United States going forward. Uh, one aspect of this whole thing that really stands out to me is that many of the civil society, uh, pro-privacy, consumer advocate groups were very uncomfortable with the age-appropriate design code uh, from the beginning, partially because it could restrict uh, children's access to lawful content. It could also require companies to actually con uh, collect additional sensitive information about people in order to meet these age estimation, age assurance uh, requirements. And these like traditional pro-privacy advocacy groups very much stayed out of the briefing in the age-appropriate design code case, and their arguments weren't heard uh, before the court officially on the record. Uh, as this case proceeds, I expect those pro-privacy groups to be following this case and saying, wow, this could have broad negative impacts for a whole bunch of laws that we really like, and I expect for them to make their voice heard in the briefing process as this case proceeds, and it's going to be very interesting to see how that impacts this litigation uh, going forward. So huge, huge thing to watch in 2024. Yeah, and I'll add, I think, so I come at it from a very, a little bit of a different perspective. I think everything you summarized so far, Kira, makes, you know, absolute uh, factual sense. And all of this is uh, accurate. I, I will say that um, companies, well, 
Let me, let's start with this. California has really done itself a disservice through the age appropriate design code. Um, we know California has led the way on the consumer privacy laws, which actually do have a nod to minors and the expectations for, uh, for consent and consumer uh, choice for minors as well in the consumer privacy law. There are also expectations with regard to collecting and processing data for under um, 13 to, for 13 to 15 and then 15 to 17 in California's consumer privacy law, as well as in its new rulemaking with regard to ADM. So what we're seeing is that, yes, there are some constitutional challenges to um, the AADC, but that doesn't mean that companies, that this is all going to go away in, uh, you know, just a snap of a finger because of the, of these challenges. What I'm finding is I have to, you know, again, push the reset button when I talk to companies and help them see the bigger picture. Uh, not only are there, uh, there's, like I mentioned, California's ADM rules, which are likely to, to move forward fairly quickly this year. And coming into 2024, there's also Delaware and Connecticut, which have added a new obligations for companies when they're processing data of minors under the age of 18. And so more companies are now on the hook for that. And then there's the advertising context. Again, I go back to that because of how uh, important the, the implications of privacy are on advertising. So when it comes to you know thinking about these issues um, from a holistic manner, Let's let's take a step back. Privacy is, of course, a global issue, and companies should be reviewing the trends globally as they think about you know the considerations that meet their needs within the U.S., especially if they're U.S. based. Um, yes, the rest of the world, including the U.K., moved forward with their age-appropriate design code. Yes, the U.S. has a different constitutional system, and so of course, and a different you know form of government, and of course, the 1A challenges will continue to present questions in companies' minds. But what we're seeing is the FTC has already launched launched a number of cases with regard to general audience services and some of the challenges with regard to the privacy practices of these services. We're seeing trends even uh, domestically within the U.S. that suggest when you think about the FTC Xbox case, Fortnite, Edmodo this year, Alexa, the Amazon Alexa case, um, all of these different uh, case, cases demonstrate that the FTC has um, really taken a closer look at not only COPPA and the under 13 considerations, but also when general audience services serve um, teens and minors what the considerations should be. So there are clear signals from regulators and state AG's offices that they care about general audience services and also services that are likely to be accessed or, you know, where a company might have a deliberate, you know, disregard for a willful disregard for uh, practice for uh, teens being on their site, as well as when um, influencers are or, you know, marketing to uh, teens becomes an important consequence or important consideration. So that marketing, that advertising, the influencer marketplace, uh, blurred advertising was another workshop that the FTC uh, uh, administered this year to focus on these key issues and the privacy implications. And so I think companies, if they are not, you know, getting their ducks in a row right now and thinking the thinking about the bigger picture, which is that. There are state cons uh, consumer privacy laws that have implications for minors as part of sensitive data and obligations that they have to meet. There is the new and upcoming regulations like the one in California that you know companies will have to meet. There is this broader global standard that already is out there with regard to likely to be accessed. And the White House has prioritized this issue as we've seen with their recent NTIA request for comment on online safety and teen mental health and, and privacy issues. Um, BBB national programs did 
respond to that comment. I know FPF has done that as well. I think that our recommendations really focus on independent accountability as a viable solution. And so I will say that companies, um, if you're interested in learning more on what you can do now to act rather than wait for sort of the aftermath of the many years of constitutional challenges that we're likely to see, um, you know, feel free to take a look. We have resources on our website. I've, I've done a number of blogs on this particular issue of teens and understanding sort of the uh, important implications in the consumer privacy laws and providing a much more, like I, I said before, a more holistic analysis of what's happening versus really the blow by blow in California, which seems to be um, really the the more louder part of the narrative right now. So let us know if we can be a resource. We have our teenage privacy program already um, in place and likely to launch next year and would love to talk to companies and kind of get a sense of where they are and what's stopping them. You know, is it just these the constitutional challenge aspect or is it something more and how do we get their mindset right to act and be good actors in this space? Here in the beginning of this conversation, you kind of set us up by discussing how the U.S. still is lacking at the federal level a comprehensive privacy law. And so last year, we talked about the potential influence of what was proposed, the ADPPA. And I want to ask, where does the ADPPA or federal level legislation on privacy uh, stand now. And since AI has entered the conversation globally uh, and the privacy conversation, especially in a big way, how might the potential of a federal privacy law in 2024 or beyond be affected by the imminence of and the focus on adopting policy or some sort of regulation around AI. I think this year there was really a lack of clear consensus from the House and Senate on whether to focus on AI or data privacy, um, you know, right off the bat, given all the boom in, you know, the chat GPT and the the gen, you know, generative AI LLMs, the discussion and the discourse really was morphed from thinking about federal data privacy legislation to a bigger emphasis, I think, on AI and what to do. So Senator Schumer, right, you know, off the bat earlier in the year, made it very clear that AI would be a big priority for the Senate and left privacy more of a secondary as a secondary issue. And of course, this is my analysis and sort of my positioning on it. But, you know, kids' privacy legislation bubbled up, I think, in the Senate in the middle of the year. It passed, you know, through the Senate, the, Senate, the uh, specific subcommittee, um, but really hasn't made, uh, hasn't had that much traction, I think, closer to the end of this year. On the House side, I think there were at least six hearings on data privacy. So they had taken up the, the federal privacy legislation as a big issue. And there was also a handful on AI that the House has done. Um, the, and I've been following, you know, the House actually had a subcommittee hearing last week on AI and healthcare. And so there seems to be a lot of interest in, you know, should we be thinking about these issues broadly as general purpose AI or as a federal data privacy legislation? Should we be thinking about um, more sectoral specific changes, as I've met, as we mentioned during the during the podcast today? Um, and, you know, what the, what is that really, what does that appropriate scoping look like for some sort of legislation? Uh, another important point, I think that, you know, we have taken a, from my years of kind of analyzing federal proposals on federal privacy legislation, a lot of times we've taken 
uh, a big chunk of what has been done in the EU and taken a look at GDPR. And I want to bring the audience's attention to a mindset shift that happened just a few weeks ago. I heard out of the European Commission that there is an interest in um, potential self-regulation in AI and moving away from a, a high-risk or a risk-based approach in the EU AI Act. And I think that's a very interesting turning point in the discussions around AI. The reason I bring that up, and you know, obviously I'm one of the believers that federal privacy has to be a foundation for AI, and I think that both of them go hand in hand. Um, but the reason I bring up the EU, that particular trend that we're seeing is that I think the U.S., one possible solution is that the U.S. could draw up it's, you know, ideal federal privacy legislation, not necessarily pull everything from GDPR because we are unique and we've talked about the constitutional challenges um, and important aspects that, that need to be included. Um, but also the fact that um, that uh, if we had that baseline comprehensive federal privacy legislation, we could then build on that with uh, and stack on top of it self-regulation and voluntary commitments in AI, which we're already seeing a lot of companies get behind. But um, I think that would be a really nice one-two punch. And that way we regulate, we, do, we try not to over-regulate in the space and still keep up with the times and what's happening in the space. So there does need to be more strategic decision-making. And it feels like there's been a lot of political football this year around budget. And of course, the speaker election threw things off. There was a lot of back and forth in both the House and the Senate. And politics is everywhere, of course. So it's not as easy as making an educated guess as to whether or not um, either an AI law or a federal privacy law will pass. I think there's a lot more to it, um, but this just gives you a few hints as to what we've seen this year. Look, I, I will be very blunt. Uh, we spent a lot of time discussing uh, in last year's podcast, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, a very significant and far-reaching federal privacy proposal that uh, passed through the House Energy and Commerce Committee by a 53 to 2 vote, uh, but then got no further. We were expecting that a that or a similar proposal may be reintroduced uh, in Congress this year. That hasn't happened. Uh, we now have a divided Congress. We are entering an election year. We are very, very unlikely to see any serious traction on comprehensive privacy legislation in 2024, though I would love to be proven wrong. Uh, there is a chance that we may see some movement on one of these children's focused privacy bills that Divya mentioned, something like COSA or COPPA 2.0. Um, is important to note that there is still significant civil society opposition to COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, uh, because of a controversy around uh, an element called the duty to care which there were concerns uh, would permit state attorneys general to target LGBT uh, online content. Uh, when it comes to kind of the uh, public uh, reflection and recollection of the uh, ADPPA, though, I think it is important uh, for the record to show that uh, in terms of covered entities, uh, substantive obligations such as data minimization and digital civil rights, as well as enforcement, the inclusion of a tailored private right of action, uh, the framework of the ADPA proposal uh, would have gone much further than anything we have in the states. 
uh, there was still absolutely a lot of work left to do on that bill. It had been substantively revised and amended three or four times in a very short period. Uh, however, it was uh, really disappointing to hear uh, some of the misinformation uh, surrounding that proposal, which I believe contributed contributed to it not getting a House vote and kind of depriving the U.S. of further work on the most significant federal privacy proposal that we've had in at least a decade. And I think you see some of that fall out uh, this year. You, we had three or four states uh, introduce uh, legislative proposals that weren't modeled on the existing state privacy laws, but that were based on the ADPPA. But again, because that proposal didn't have the opportunity to get further baked, uh, these proposals, I think, had several problems and may have contributed to uh, this ADPPA-based legislation not advancing. Uh, you, you, you brought up AI, and you're absolutely right. It's, for better or worse, the latter half of 2023 has very much emerged as the year of AI. It has been a massive time and attention suck, uh, but there are extremely important uh, issues raised by advances in artificial intelligence systems, uh, particularly those with generative capabilities, as well as many long-standing technologies, uh, automated decision-making, profiling, which are kind of in use today and under many definitions and conceptions of artificial intelligence uh, may be covered. Uh, I, I would note that uh, a comprehensive uh, federal privacy framework that provides elements such as data minimization, uh, individual rights to correct, uh, risk assessments, uh, transparency about how you use data, all of those provisions would apply uh, whether processing is carried out in an artificial intelligence or some other context. And I think that many uh, if, though certainly not all, of the current concerns uh, involving the use of these AI technologies could be addressed in a meaningful way uh, by federal privacy legislation. So I want to ask, are these laws actually effective as far as genuinely comprehensively protecting and addressing individual privacy? And then what do you think or wonder the core priorities might be in 2024. All of these state laws do, for the most part, provide a similar set of consumer rights, the ability to access, correct, delete, and port your personal data, uh, some form of personal choice, either opt-in or opt-out with respect to certain data use cases. Uh, but I think the privacy community has long recognized the limitations of relying on a solely rights-based approach. No individual is going to go website by website, business by business, and toggle all of their privacy settings to make sure their pre preferences are honored with respect to all the companies that you interact with through one day. And so states have recognized and are responding to this issue by seeking to establish ways in which people can select a third-party entity or enable some form of technical signal that allows them to exercise and express their privacy rights and privacy preferences on a default basis throughout the economy. There's a lot of promise in this field, especially with respect to protocols like the global privacy control. Uh, however, it is very much still an open question how this will all function in practice. Um, there's also uh, 
many kind of consumer privacy advocates out there who argue that this approach to privacy does put too much of the burden on protecting uh, individual privacy on consumers themselves and have argued for more default limitations on the collection and use of personal data, uh, uh, data minimization provisions. Many of these state laws have valuable provisions uh, requiring businesses to conduct uh, risk assessments, uh, but others would want to see things like this go further. Um, turning to, I think, what may be coming in 2024, where there may be gaps. I, we mentioned AI uh, earlier in this conversation, and I think we are going to see many, many states focus on trying to establish new rights and protections uh, with respect to businesses' use of advanced artificial intelligence systems. Some of them may take a risk management uh, business uh, processes approach. Some may focus more on empowering consumers with the ability to opt out of being subject to certain decisions, decisions made in a partially uh, or solely automated basis. I think what's really going to be important here is what California does. Uh, California had legislation last year, Assembly Bill 331, uh, that focused on businesses' use of consequential decision-making systems. At the same time, the California Privacy Protection Agency has embarked on rulemaking uh, pursuant to the underlying California Consumer Privacy Act with respect to automated decision-making technology. These two processes cover much of the same ground, but they do so in significantly different ways. Uh, one applies to systems that so much as facilitate uh, human decision-making. Uh, another uh, applies to systems that are controlling, that are a controlling factor in reaching a decision, or the controlling factor in reaching a decision, and A versus V may actually be a, a, a significant uh, uh, drafting uh, uh, issue uh, under that bill. Uh, so questions around which of these will go forward first, how they would uh, operate in practice, how would they interact with each other, I think are going to be followed by policymakers uh, across the country who are very focused on artificial intelligence for many good reasons, uh, recognize that uh, the federal government has done a lot of good in this space, especially the Biden administration's recent executive order on AI, but may want to take additional steps to protect their residents, particularly involving business uses of advances in these, uh, these technologies. First off, um, rights are only as good as the constituents who are actually using them. And what I mean by that is, you know, there does need to be more digital citizenship in this country to be, make co consumers aware of their choices and to make them effective when it comes to leveraging those choices and those rights that they have. So that remains a key challenge. I think it's hats off, as you mentioned here to the states that they have held public stakeholder sessions, allowed for comments to gather feedback on what's missing. It really allows for a free flow of not only industry's voice to be heard, but also for advocates and for privacy um, organizations and, you know, the, um, the folks that are really committed. But there is a, I think there's still a disconnect in the broader discourse because the average consumer, and I know uh, California uses this language, the FTC has their own version of the average consumer, right? The average consumer, what, what do these rights actually mean to them and how effective are we at um, being able to ensure that, that they are using 
leveraging and leveraging these these uh, choices. I think that's a super interesting study of its own and something that we will probably see more organizations uh, undertake research on, and that will help us fill the gap on you know whether or not uh, individual privacy could be strengthened further, or are there ways to um, I don't like to use the word dumb it down, but really try to make this clear and more commonplace that individuals have more autonomy than they may, they may think they do with regard to their data and to their um, access to content online. A second, when we look at the, you know, the other side of the coin, which is how companies, what companies are facing, right? We know they're swimming in laws, as you noted, Akir, and I've mentioned this as well already about their commitments to digital advertising and other spaces as well, whether it's uh, consumer health, privacy, or more niche areas that are closely, um, that closely intersect with broader consumer privacy. Um, so I think if you ask us the same question in about five years, we'll have a better understanding. Companies will then be um, fully attuned to what's happening. Of many, you know, companies right now, as I mentioned, are um, there's just so much coming at them that it's it's too much, and it, it's hard for them to be able to meet all of those obligations, right or not, you know, to uh, understand the patchwork. And with regard to uh, really wrapping up and um, <clears throat> the core priorities for 2024, I'll give you a few of mine that I think would be. Um, important to consider. Um, you know, first off, the FTC's most recent news, I think it's actually sort of fallen into the cracks and many companies are not aware of this, but a new comp compulsory review process of the AI commitments that um, add that will add more pressure to companies that are providing their voluntary commitments online on the types, the ways that they're leveraging AI. Second, data flows. I mean, honestly, Rima, we could probably do an, a whole nother podcast and I'm sure you've already covered this in some of your previous series, but this year, data flows took a back seat and the IAPP EY Privacy Governance Report covers this. I you know, call folks' attention to that report. It's really well done. And the fact that companies have strategically prioritized AI over data flows is a big problem. I understand that the Department of Commerce came out with their news about, um, you know, this whole issue around uh, the adequacy uh, shield and, you know, well, for, formerly privacy shield, but the new EU US data privacy framework. But that is a huge area that companies need to jump on next year. Um, last two things I'll point out, and it really dovetails well, well with some of the operational um, aspects that Kier's mentioned getting your technical priorities straight when it comes to data scientists, programmers, engineers, getting in their heads, getting all of the appropriate voices to be considering things like the global privacy opt-out control, some of the pixel tracking and ad tech that's happening, um, as well as the AI aspects of data, uh, data privacy aspects of AI. And I think making sure you have the right uh, voices in the room that are actually doing the day-to-day -day operational aspects of that, um, of, of the privacy and security landscape is going to be essential going into 2024. This was completely fascinating. Lots of great resources mentioned by both of you throughout. So we'll be sure to link everything that was mentioned in the show notes. So for folks listening, you can check that out. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show. And this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden, 
at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.